Hi there, I'm Anne-Marie McQueen, editor of Live Healthy, and this is the Live Healthy Podcast. Each week we interview health and wellness leaders and talk about all the things that are good for you, which you can also read about in our online magazine, the only one of its kind for men and women in the UAE. And now, here's this week's guest. Today on the Live Healthy Podcast, we have Dr. Stephen Grobmeyer. He's chair of the Oncology Institute at Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi. Uh, Dr. Grobmeyer received his medical degree from the University of Texas Southwestern Medical School and completed his residency in general surgery at New York Hospital Cornell Medical Center in New York and a fellowship in surgical oncology at Memorial Sloan Kettering in 2004. Um, Welcome, Dr. Grobmeyer. We're talking to you ahead of World Cancer Day on February 4th. I came across Dr. Grabmeyer last year at, a, I've said this to you before, you were on the podcast talking about breast cancer, at a talk at Body Tree about breast cancer, and I became a fan. I'm not supposed to say I'm a fan of people I'm interviewing, but uh, just the positive way you talked about it and just your manner and... Uh, you just gave a room full of women a lot of hope there. So uh, <laughs> I, I am so excited to talk to you about all cancers. Um, just to start off that day, you said the thing that was so awesome. And we wrote a story about it on Live Healthy, uh, which was the, the risk for breast cancer, about a third of it is in our hands, but our lifestyle, the way we handle stress and the way we handle our risk factors and all that. Is there a way to frame that for all cancers? I, I, is there any way you can sort of repurpose that for us? Sure. There, you know, well, thank you again for having me. But for sure, um, uh, that that's true for many cancers. And, and I think what we're really referring to on a broader level is uh, the relationship of several things, most notably the environment or the environment we create for ourselves and uh, our risk for getting cancer. So for s- certain specific things like lung cancer, uh, we know that uh, smoking uh, is associated with developing lung cancer. So, but the, just in general, a healthy lifestyle, we think uh, leads to uh, reduced inflammation in the body. And we think that uh, chronic inflammation can be associated with cancer. So for sure, um, a lot of cancer is preventable. We can do things through our diet by eating, for instance, a high fiber diet to reduce our risk of getting colorectal cancer. Um, exercise we know is important for reducing uh, stress and inflammation in the body. And uh, we think that has global effects on on the entire body. And then another area, which I think we talked about where we can really, uh, patients and their families can be empowered is through simply knowing their family history of cancer. So there are patterns of cancer that run in certain families. Uh, For instance, a family has uh, multiple generations with colorectal cancer. When that information is shared with one's doctor, then there are ways that patients can be screened earlier Uh, they can be checked for cancer earlier. Um, Genetic tests can be done to better define that risk. And then we can test other family members to see if they share that risk. So uh, much of what we talked about relative to breast cancer applies to um, other cancers as well. And does it apply for, um, you know, the mental health aspect of it and and the way we handle stress and that sort of thing? Is that for all cancers too? Stress certainly is involved with the, with the cortisol levels in the body, and, and this is, is also associated with 
chronic inflammation, and for sure, it has a negative effect on the body. So th these things are very important, uh, you know, in terms of risk for all cancers. And I'd like to focus more, you know, talk about the UAE and maybe the wider Gulf, if you can speak to it, but um, what clinical developments would you say are most promising here that you, that you can speak to? A lot of promising things. And, and uh, in the area of cancer in general, both uh, diagnosis and treatment of cancer, a lot is, a lot is happening. Um, but really what's critical, and we're already seeing this happen here, particularly at Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi, is a development of teams of people. Uh, cancer is best cared for by teams of experts. And so you can be in the hands of a great surgeon, but unless we make sure that we have your diagnosis absolutely correct, or that the imaging to stage the cancer is not done perfectly, that uh, we, you may be embarking on, on a wrong pathway. So what we're having a lot of success with, I'm very happy to say, is uh, we've created an environment where we're able to attract experts, the best experts from around the world to come and join us here. Uh, so we can really continue to embellish um, the, the, what we're able to offer cancer patients here. Another concept that I think is critical is what we're developing here, which is a, a freestanding cancer center. And uh, this is very critical because most cancer patients actually need the help of multiple specialists, okay? Uh, maybe a surgeon, maybe a radiation doctor, um, maybe a medical doctor, um, but also a nutritionist, uh, uh, a team that can be helpful in terms of physical uh, rehabilitation and psychological wellness. And then also uh, cancer treatment. These cancer, for many uh, instances, has become a chronic disease and, and the treatments have gotten more effective and, and many patients are living a long time with cancer. And so this is an important phase of, of, of life with cancer called survivorship. And something that we're starting to really focus on here is, so you've been diagnosed with cancer, so you've been through cancer treatment. What can we do now to improve your quality of life? What can we do to reduce the chance through lifestyle modification to reduce the chance that cancer will come back? And uh, how do we also look for this you know, recurrence and how also do we look to limit the secondary effects of some of the cancer treatments that people have had? So it's really bringing all this together that makes a cancer center and it's really a hallmark of the way cancer is treated in other parts of the world. And we we're, we're, have the privilege of developing that type of center here. And it's very exciting for us and more importantly, for the patients that uh, uh, we'll be able to offer this to in the future. Okay. And I mean, it feels like half of the people will get cancer. I think some of the stats are that high, but also people are living longer and recovering more. Can you just speak to that sort of uh, those two sides? I've caught early cancer is very treatable and many times curable. Um, so there's a lot of good news. There's also good news in the fact that uh, we have a lot of new treatments for cancer that even a few years ago we didn't have, and it's offering a lot of hope to cancers, which in the past really we didn't have a lot of treatments for. Um, we are around the world in general seeing an aging population, particularly in the Western Hemisphere uh, and parts of Europe uh, and other parts of the world. And we know uh, that cancer is a disease of aging in many cases, uh, and that, that older patients are in general, more, more prone to develop cancer. So what you have then is an older uh, population around the world uh, and older patients are more likely to get cancer. So we're gonna be seeing a rise in the number of cancer cases uh, globally for sure. And I think it's incumbent upon us now uh, in the UAE and in other parts of the world 
to be prepared for that. And that's currently what we're, we're doing. Uh, so we can address, you know, this uh, rising concern. What uh, treatments are you most excited about right now? New, new therapies? Many treatments. I mean, in, in, uh, in the thing that gets the most discussion is something called immunotherapy. And immunotherapy is something that's been researched for years and now really coming to a fruition and, and being recognized as a real uh, clinical reality. And what immunotherapy excitingly does is it, it, it leverages uh, the patient's own immune system to treat cancer. And in some cases, even we're studying uh, using the immune system to prevent cancer. And I can talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, um, but, but it's an exciting area because uh, we know that uh, if we can use the body's own immune system, we might be able to avoid some of the side effects and toxicity of, of treatments. But it's understanding how to leverage the immune system uh, where a lot of work is being done. But immunotherapy is importantly uh, creating treatments for cancers where we traditionally had no treatments, like uh, a very aggressive form of skin cancer called melanoma. Traditionally, melanoma was very difficult to treat. And now, in many cases of melanoma, uh, immunotherapy can be used and is resulting in amazing outcomes that we previously had never seen. And the same is true, for instance, in lung cancer. Uh, where immunotherapy has become a mainstay of treatment. And then even in some of the more common cancers, we're now learning, like in, in certain types of breast cancer, that immunotherapy may have a role. So it's in a very exciting time. And, uh, it, it, you know, uh, I think the future is bright for immunotherapy. Can you Another just kind describe, of treat, yeah. okay, can you just describe, say, for lung cancer, how specifically, as, as simply as you can explain, how specifically does immunotherapy work for, for lung cancer? What happens when a patient gets diagnosed with lung cancer, it used to be in the, in the old days, a patient was diagnosed with lung cancer. Now what happens is a patient's not only diagnosed with lung cancer, but we characterize on a molecular level each patient's type of lung cancer. And what we're realizing is that certain types of lung cancer respond better to different types of immunotherapy. So by characterizing now uh, lung cancer, the medical oncologist can clearly uh, lay out a path of treatment for a patient, like I said, that we never had before. And the same is true in melanoma. So a patient's diagnosed with skin cancer called melanoma, and uh, we're able to characterize that on a molecular level and then predict which patients will respond to which treatments. And this is really the future, is personalizing the diagnosis of cancer and then picking specific treatments that will allow a great outcome in, in, in theory with less side effects. But what is like, what is the immunotherapy? Like what is the, what do you give the, how does it work? How does it work? There's different types of immunotherapy. Um, and and uh, so one type of immunotherapy is vaccines. So you use the body's immune system to prevent a disease. Okay. So you um, just like in the case of cervical cancer. So we have a vaccine that prevents a virus and the virus is what causes cervical cancer. So if you give the vaccine, you can prevent cancer. So that's one um, sort of traditional type of immunotherapy. We also have medications that specifically go in and um, alter the immune response. Um, okay. So they'll, they'll block certain signaling pathways within the body to allow a cancer to be attacked by one's own immune system. So that's okay. another type of immunotherapy. And then a final type, which is really at the forefront, is actually taking some of, of the cells out of a, a patient's body and then uh, uh, manipulating the cells in such a way with, that when they're put back in the body, they specifically attack the cancer. 
Okay. So this is really at the forefront. And, and this is a, another exciting area where we've seen outcomes which were never possible until we had these types of things. But as I said, I think we're at the very beginning of this and it's a very exciting time. Uh, of, and I'm sure there'll be other ways in the future that we manipulate the immune system to help us prevent and treat cancer. I've heard recently a lot of you know people on podcasts talking about how we all have cancer cells. I have cancer cells in me right now. I was born with them. People in Japan have them. People in Australia have them. But they're not doing anything, hopefully. <laughs> but what is is that? Can you just just talk about that a little bit? That this is something oh, yes. that they're there, and then they and then they ignite. I guess. I think I think uh, that's the great question, and I think this is an area of active research. Um, I can give you an example. So. Uh, there have been autopsy studies in, in several different types of diseases where uh, patients die. Perhaps they die of heart disease. They die of a heart attack. And um, undoubtedly, in, in large autopsy studies, uh, it, it can be discovered that patients have some form of precancer. Uh, in the case of breast, a certain number of patients die of other causes and are found to have um, a pre kind of breast cancer called DCIS. And so there are other cases uh, in other types of cancer where this is true also. So our interpretation of this is that uh, undoubtedly there are uh, perhaps precancers that develop, uh, perhaps they're taken care of by the immune system, um, perhaps they, they're latent cancers, they don't really develop or progress. But what's important, I think the message relative to this discussion is that uh, patients who are diagnosed with cancer don't interpret this type of thing uh, to mean that they don't need treatment. Uh, because once we diagnose a cancer, uh, we have to assume that it's something that will have potential to manifest. And in many cases, particularly in these early cancers, we know that our interventions will be associated with a very good long-term outcome. But I think your question is very good one, and, and undoubtedly, uh, that is true. It's uh, just a question in the end of deciding which of these uh, occult, occult cancers uh, will be problematic or not. And I think that's an area of active uh, research that would we can make progress there would really change the field. Right. Like if someday they could, they could see what cancer cells you had, and then you could, I mean, that sounds like it's where, where it's going in the long term. Well, it is actually already there because now they're, they're, they're being developed around the world uh, assays that will actually uh, in the future, I think, be able to check the blood for DNA of cancer cells that's in the blood. And it's not uh, made it to the clinical uh, arena just yet, but I suspect in the years to come, we may see some of that uh, where we can actually uh, either diagnose or monitor the status of cancers by tests such as that. Okay. I bet Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk is, might be having those tests. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, how about, um, I had a family member diagnosed eight years ago with a brain tumor. So I read a book called Anti-Cancer, which was written by a neurologist who had cancer. And what struck me in that book was, um, I know there's a lot of people out there talking about alternative therapies and complementary therapies. And that's nerve wracking for you because you're, you're curing people, you're helping people, you're help, you know, you're uh, treating people. But in that book, it wasn't saying don't have your cancer treatment. It just had a very strong message, which kept this guy alive, I think, for 22 years. He died 22 years after he found out about his brain tumor. Mindset. And he just talked all the time that when you have a cancer diagnosis and you look at the median age 
you know, immediate time of survival for more dire cancers, he said, there's always the long end of the tail. And when you look out at those people, studies have shown that they have specific ways that they responded to their cancer diagnosis in addition to treatment. Can I ask you about that? Those, those outliers who sort of beat the odds and go and it was always diet mindset. They would meditate. They would, they were maybe not told that they had a certain amount of time to live or they just chose not to believe it. Can you just speak to that a little bit if you see that at Cleveland Clinic? Oh, we see this all the time, um, uh, for sure. And I think the first way I'll address that is this issue of alternative therapy. And I think we talked about this before. And uh, I, I don't think, you know, we, we firmly believe in the power of alternative therapy. But as you point out, we don't think in most cases it's a um, reliable uh, replacement for standard treatment. I mean, you have to realize that all of us, uh, we wear this white coat, we come to work every day wanting people to get better. And uh, we tend to make our recommendations based on available data. Well, a lot of alternative treatments are new and they haven't maybe been studied as much. Doesn't necessarily mean they're invalid, but we try to rely on things that we know work. And when it comes to alternative therapies, we try to encourage people um, to talk to their doctor about them and see how they might be integrated into uh, the treatments that they are receiving to either reduce side effects or improve the efficacy of treatment and those types of things. We also don't want the alternative treatments to, um, to somehow diminish the effect of treatments that we know work. And so I think this is an important dialogue between patients and, and doctors and the, the care team uh, so that patients can get the best outcome. But I fully support these things um, you know, when done in the right context uh, because they can be quite powerful. And they certainly can help uh, alleviate symptoms and stress and different things like that. So uh, they're very important. And then in terms of uh, outliers, you know, we, we uh, you know, I think the mindset has changed in terms of cancer treatment. We talked about turning cancer into a chronic disease. And uh, we used to, for instance, uh, take breast cancer, for instance, we used to take patients who um, had metastatic breast cancer. That's breast cancer that's gone beyond the breast to other parts of the body. And it used to be the teaching was, well, once it's gone beyond the body, it's not curable. Now we're learning that uh, in certain cases, for instance, when the breast cancer has left the breast and gone maybe to one or two sites in the bone, we've now changed our thinking on that. And we believe that with a combination of radiation and some other kinds of treatment that we might be able to cure patients that we couldn't before. So I think particularly as our treatments evolve, uh, they're gonna, you're gonna see more and more quote outliers. Uh, and that's why we're always giving uh, patients hope because uh, not all patients respond the same to all treatments. And we tell patients, you know, we say that patients aren't studies, patients are individuals. And uh, our obligation is to treat individuals and, and, and not everybody fits the pattern on a study. So um, we try to encourage um, patients and then give them a lot of hope. Um, through the new treatments that we have and, and the sort of team-based approach that we use here. What would you say are the most under-researched areas in 2021? In the UAE, um, I think specifically, we have some ways to go. We, we're lucky to have a, a registry, a cancer registry in the Emirate of Abu Dhabi, and uh, it keeps track of all the, the cancer cases. And we, we're starting to think about using that as a, as a resource to understand uh, the patterns of cancer uh, and how they may or may not differ from patterns of cancer in other parts of the world. But I think to the extent that they're different, we need to try to understand why they're different. Is it 
Is it related to lifestyle? Uh, is it related to genetics? And, and these are things that we're uh, particularly interested in as we're here to serve the patients of the UAE and the, the Middle East. And, and, you know, great cancer centers like the one we're developing here should um, be focused on local cancer problems because cancer problems are different in different parts of the world, even in the United States. I mean, if you go to the Southern part of the United States, you'll see a very high incidence of certain types of cancer that are undoubtedly environmentally related. So a cancer center there would, needs to focus on those cancers while in other parts of the world, maybe different kinds of cancer are more prevalent. So we take very seriously our obligation to understand and, and sort of try to improve the situation here um, because it is undoubtedly will be different than it is in other parts of the world. And to the extent we understand what's going on here, we can help improve the situation here. And then beyond that, to improve the situation globally, that's our even broader mission. Do you see, I mean, you, you have a sense there. Are you able to have a sense of, you know, compared to when you've been in the States to here, what cancers are more prevalent that you're seeing? Well, the most common cancers in the UAE are um, similar to other parts of the world, but maybe a little bit different. Here in the UAE, the common cancers are breast cancer, colorectal cancer, prostate cancer, okay? Those would be very consistent with other parts of the world. The other common cancers that are reported by the World Health Organization as being common in the UAE are thyroid cancer, which is a little unusual, and um, hematologic malignancy, which is also a little unusual. In many parts of the world, we see lung cancer uh, higher on the list. Um, so, you know, we're continuing to try to understand that. Um, what are the factors that lead, lead to these observations? Um, and what can we do about it? Um, we're also trying to sort out the issue of, you know, the UAE, I think, in general, has a little bit younger population than other parts of the world. So we're trying to understand is the fact that we're seeing, in many cases, younger patients than we do in other parts of the world. Is that a phenomenon related to the status of the population here? Or is it something uh, that represents a, a different manifestation of this diseases that we're seeing? Yeah. And these are, these are very important questions. I have seen some of your press releases. I can't remember the specific case, but there are some where it's like a very young woman came in with a kind of cancer that was something that a, an old woman. A lot of younger women with breast cancer, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, not everyone has the insurance to come to Cleveland Clinic if they, you know, to be diagnosed there, to, to have be under your amazing team. And that's just a reality here um, in the UAE and everywhere. You can't just always go to the best center. So what would you be your advice for someone who doesn't have that level of care? And not to say that any of the other level of care um, is that it's lower, just that perhaps it isn't more integrative and, you know, that the team isn't in place. So you're wading into a system that isn't set up the way you guys are. What would you say to a patient or their family? Like, what would be the three things that they should keep in mind and the questions to ask? Right. Um, I, I think uh, the first thing is, is to go to a center where you have uh, doctors that are particularly interested or focused on the type of cancer that you have or the type of problem that you have. Okay. Um, there's a lot of great doctors in the UAE um, and it's just a question of getting, you know, in, in different, many different environments, as you point out, and it's getting into in, in making sure uh, also that you're comfortable with that team because in many cases, uh, cancer care, unlike many other aspects of healthcare, is not episodic. Right? You go to the emergency room and it's an episode. Cancer care for many people becomes a longitudinal thing. So it often involves long-term relationships. So 
initially you want to make sure you're dealing with uh, a physician and a team of physicians that have a specific interest, if possible, in the in the in the in the area uh, of particular concern to you. That you're comfortable with them and, and the environment that they're providing you. And then I think a very final thing is the is the power of second opinions. And uh, we encourage people, uh, particularly with a new diagnosis of cancer, to seek second opinions uh, to make sure that um, others agree. I mean, a lot of cancer care, particularly for early stage cancer. Is, is based on protocols that have been derived. You know, we use the ones derived in the United States and in Europe and uh, they're pretty standard. And so what you wanna do is get a second opinion to make sure that the team that you've selected to take care of you is providing treatment that's in accordance with some very standard guidelines. And uh, that shouldn't be too hard, but it, it, it helps reassure people because also remember when people embark on treatment, some of the treatments, you can't redo it, not something you re replay. And if you have surgery, it can't be undone. If you have radiation, it can't be undone. So I think using the time wisely. Um, I also advise people to, to empower themselves by getting and collecting their own records so that it can streamline when they do see other doctors uh, and other people and get other opinions. It can make this quite easy process. And that would involve having your medical records, copies of your x-rays, and then when needed, helping us get the slides we're fortunate in the UAE to have the Malafi system, which is also helping with that, uh, in that a lot of, it's a lot of, uh, of the medical records have been made electronic. So doctors at one facility can see the, you know, some of the reports and records that have been done in other parts or other hospitals in the region. So I think there's a lot of things people can do. It's just uh, making sure again, that you're comfortable with your care team and the people providing care to you and then getting a second opinion is always important. And I think, um, you know, Times to treatment um, is one thing, but I think when you get a cancer diagnosis, obviously you're like, this is a race against the clock. I've got to get going, I've got to get going. But to take that second opinion, like, do you have a little bit of time? Or you'll be told there's no time, but you have a little bit of time. We're like probably you, as focused on time to treatment as anyone. And by time to treatment, we don't mean that a cancer needs to be treated in, in 12 hours or 24 hours or a day or two days. We're talking, this should not be delayed months, you know, two, three, four months it should not be delayed. But certainly that's why I mentioned having the records available and then being able to share them with others in a timely fashion. Um, but you do have time. No cancer that we know of develops in days or hours or weeks. These, this is the chronic process. So I think, you know, just having that peace of mind, which we talked about earlier by having the insight from another team of, of uh, care providers can be very empowering and also create a you know piece of, of of mind for patients as they go through the journey of cancer treatment. But certainly it's time well spent. The UAE is unique in a way because you could go see um, a European specialist and you could go see a specialist from the US and that really you might get a, a different opinion just from you know their perspectives, which you wouldn't have that opportunity. Is that the case too? That's definitely true. We have a, you know, a, a, a wide mix of uh, physicians from different parts of the world here. Um, I would also emphasize that for most cancers, uh, you know, I think the tradition of a lot of cancer care in, in this part of the world, in, in the Middle East and other, some other parts of the world, has been to, to travel abroad to get cancer care. Well, I, I think times are changing. And, and I think what I see is people recognizing the power, particularly now that they have access in many cases to great uh, uh, care teams that have moved here for the, this specific purpose and have been governments uh, had the foresight to bring us here 
to provide the care that patients don't need to travel. And, and we believe that, you know, being in a comfortable environment, sleeping in your own bed, uh, having people that you can trust in the long term um, is very important and being comfortable and, and not stressed and, and eating your own food and having access to your friends and family during that journey of cancer treatment is very important. And that's why uh, we're so passionate about what we're building here because it will allow people to get every uh, bit of care they would travel to Cleveland, Ohio at the main campus Cleveland Clinic and get here uh, through direct integration and, and, and teams working together to provide great care to patients. That is such a great point because I think that's an old notion and obviously when there weren't people here, but it's just like old habits die hard and the government has worked so hard to bring you all here that it's not necessarily the case that you have to go and people are still doing it. So I think that that people still think that, but that's a great, thank you for bringing that up. Um, oh, I tell people that when I, when I was in Cleveland, there were people from around the world would come to see me in Cleveland, Ohio. And I said, I tell people, I'm here. I came all this way. You don't need to go somewhere else. And we're all here. And uh, we have behind us in many areas, the full force of Cleveland Clinic here. And I'm sure it's true of other hospital systems in the region too, that have partnerships with other great hospitals around the uh, around the world that, uh, you know, in the right hands, you're going to be just fine here and, and more comfortable and less stressed and happier here. Well, this is a wonderful thing to highlight now because I, I know I even caught myself thinking when COVID was descending, I can have my own form of health anxiety. And I thought, oh my God, if I get sick, where am I, you know, where am I going to, and I was like, calm down. Like you interview these doctors all the time. You know that there's great doctors here. So calm down about that. You know, just because we can't travel doesn't mean, yeah. I wondered how you're feeling about Dr. Google. Cause you know, when the internet first came out, there was Dr. Google and you can't Google. And there was a lot of uh, frustration by medic and the medical community by patients coming and, you know, diagnosing themselves. But I, I don't know, this has gone so far now and we find out so much information about ourselves and there's so much information out there. Where are you at with that when patients come to you with their own diagnosis or their own ideas about what might be going on? Well, I can just tell you, we, at Cleveland Clinic, we firmly believe in the power of uh, giving patients information. And um, we've gone, so we're in the process of transitioning, but you know, at main campus, the, going to a system where results are released very quickly after, in, into the patient portals and, and the computer systems that patients have access to on a very quick basis. So patients can have all the information, but um, so information is important. What we try to do to make that use of the internet helpful for patients is to try to guide them to sites that we believe are reputable. And there's tons of them, uh, World Health Organization, American Cancer Society, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, the American Society of Breast Surgery. I mean, there's on and on and on. Groups of experts have spent hours and hours and hours creating uh, validated, useful information for patients. And, and um, I think as long as we can get patients to use those, then it's a very empowering thing. What can go wrong is when patients get into maybe some websites where, for instance, uh, somebody's trying to sell some sort of alternative therapy or they they're spreading misinformation or fear about, you know, certain types of disease. Uh, it can be overwhelming for patients and their families and actually create a lot of scare and concern and stress. So I think partnering with patients to get them to the right websites is something that we take very seriously. And we try to get that to them uh, to the extent that they want it. And there's a lot of information out there. But just like when we see newly diagnosed patients, you know, I think the most important way we spend our initial time meeting them is 
by trying becoming a teacher. You know, we try to teach the patient about these are the things we know about your disease. These are the things we don't know. These are the options that we have. These are the benefits of this treatment. This is the benefits. This is the side effect of this and that. And, and just tell them, frankly, you know, we're going to partner together to make what we think is the best decision for you. And uh, we'll make our recommendations within a framework. And then, you know, within that, we can uh, work together to get you better. And that's what we do. So, but at the corner of that is information. We're not trying to withhold anything or tell people what to do. It's just, we want them to know what we know so we can get the best uh, outcome and set good expectations for patients. And those sites that you're talking about, I know those sites, but if you sign up for those sites and you really start to receive some really aggressive uh, marketing, right? Like the really aggressive emails that are, it's, it's, it would be scary if you were going through cancer and you were searching for that information and you, you're suddenly being, a, you're a target, a marketing target in, in a way. So it, yeah, I guess you sort of have to explain to people that that's an aspect of it. Yeah, you don't, certainly don't want that to happen. Or if there's ways you could just visit the site, uh, you know, without signing up, that might be helpful also. Yeah. Where is the UAE, do you think, on prevention, um, you know, efforts and awareness? Types of prevention. Um, there's primary prevention and secondary prevention. Okay. So primary prevention is lifestyle intervention. And, and I see you know, particularly as I pay attention to the newspaper and other things, I think the government's doing a great job in encouraging people to be active. You know, I know in Dubai, there was a, a healthy lifestyle exercise campaign that happened recently, which I thought was fabulous to get people outside and exercising. So I think there, you know, and, and you know, we continue, it's, it's a challenge in every society to get people to eat healthy and to avoid uh, the things in life that can be associated with cancer sometimes can be difficult, but so I think we're we're making progress, and uh, the other part of this is in secondary prevention. And secondary prevention is in uh, doing things like uh, cancer screening, age-recommended cancer screening. And certainly, I think in terms of mammography, we're seeing rising rates of you know we have a way to go, but we're seeing more compliance with screening, and uh, we're certainly doing our part to make this more available and to emphasize the importance of, of screening. The uh, in terms of lung cancer screening, we're now the only uh, we're the approved site in the in Abu Dhabi for lung cancer screening, hmm. which is for patients who are at high risk for lung cancer. Now we know that low dose CT scan can have an impact on diagnosing lung cancer early and actually have an impact on outcomes. So um, the foresight to allow that to happen and to, and to sort of uh, to make that possible within the Emirate, I think, is is a very positive step forward. Um, we have some work to do in certain areas like, um, you know, the, in terms of colon cancer, we'd like to see more compliance with the recommendations for colon cancer screening. And I think there's a lot of fear around that because, um, uh, because of the, the challenges associated with the discomfort and, and, the, and the sort of fears of colon cancer screening. But are there other options? I think this is something to talk to, to uh, for patients to talk to their doctors about to see what the options are. I mean, recently the recommendations for the starting colon cancer screening, the age, age of starting that has been dropped. And so that's in response to an observation that colorectal cancer is happening at younger ages than previous. 40? Uh, uh, 45, and in some cases 40, uh, depending on the family history. Uh, but this is important. And, and I think colon cancer is one area where we have an opportunity to improve compliance with screening. And I, I think it's incumbent that patients talk to their doctors about their family history, about what their risk is and what their options are for screening. 
so that they can uh, live a healthy life. And that's one example. Well, you have colon cancer screening and we find something, there's no question that through minimal intervention, one can significantly reduce their risk of getting colorectal cancer. Right. And okay. so uh, this is a very important area. But I think in general, we're making progress, but in every society, it's a, it's a challenge because a lot of the things um, that are associated with reducing cancer risk may not be considered so fun or as fun as alternatives, uh, like a unhealthy diet, for instance. There's we're, no... Sorry, there's no alternative for a colonoscopy yet, which is what the screening well, is? There are other options. I mean, you know, you can do, uh, you know, for patients who don't want to do that, there's a, a CT colonography and, and, and a fecal occult blood test and other things that, and, and constantly new things coming up. So I think that, you know, if one's interested, you should talk to the local experts about what the options are and um, figure that out. But even having a screening colonoscopy, having had one myself, is actually not that bad. I mean, it's actually, you barely remember having it done. So it can be quite empowering to know that everything is okay. Okay. That's amazing. One more question. I, because I'm a member of the media and I know that it's aggravating how the media reports studies and misreports, you know, relative risk and all that sort of thing. What caution would you just give to people when they're reading um, the latest, you know, new development, whether it's a positive or negative? Uh, similar to the second opinion story is don't, don't just jump on the bandwagon. You know, things that are sound too good to be true maybe are. Um, we all get excited about new developments, but you know, in general, uh, while there's new things coming, uh, things that are new uh, will be around for a long time that are actually highly impactful. So I think don't just uh, jump to the latest fad. It also would be, you know, something that's relevant to you is talk to your doctor or healthcare team next time you see them. You can ask your general uh, practitioner next time you see them at your checkup about whether those things are actually true or not. And then I think particularly with negative things, don't be too alarmed. Uh, but again, use that as an opportunity to better educate yourself about, about the reality of the situation. So, Thank you so much, Dr. Grommeyer. It's so great Thank to talk to you. Have a good day. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. That's it for this week. If you liked the podcast, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We'll see you next time on the Live Healthy Podcast.